You're listening to sermon audio from Ransom City Church. For more audio content, visit ransomcitychurch.org. So I'm going to read our text this morning. We're taking a little bit of a break away from Romans, but not entirely. Um, It'll kind of be connected with that. But if you have a Bible, uh, go to Ephesians chapter 2. And our text this morning is going to be verses 1 through 10, but we'll focus even more on a couple of those verses, but Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, says, You were dead, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus." so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Uh, day that we get to gather on the Lord's Day together as a church. We thank you for the space we can do it in. And I ask that um, as I read and preach your word, that it would be just that. It would be your word to the degree that I preach it rightly, that we'd receive it, believe it, obey it, that we would trust that your word is sufficient and true and without error, and that it builds us up where we need to be built up. It convicts us, it encourages us, it strengthens us, and it cuts our hearts. We thank you for all that in Jesus' name. Amen. So July 30th uh, is a very important day, and this summer will mark 10 years of marriage for Liz and myself. So July 30th is our 10th anniversary, and uh, the reason it's an important day is that wedding day gave, a, gave us a marriage. So the, the day is important because the relationship that we got out of it. And with that, we made an oath to live together, to build a new household together. Uh, we, we, we left our parents' households. We came together. We made a new household that never existed before. We created new people, right? New creatures, these eternal creatures that never existed before in, 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 in the past, now exist and will forever exist into the future. Um, and the only th- we, we established the only thing that could break this union is death. And so July 30th to us is a very important day. And I'm not just saying that because she's here. Um, My relationship with Liz is the most important human relationship that I have. But I'll be careful to say it's not the most important relationship that I have. The most important relationship I have is with the Lord. My relationship with Liz is the second most important relationship. It means July 30th is the second most important day in my life. October 14th of 2006 is the most important day. That's the day that I came to faith, trusted the Lord, placed my faith in him, was given new life. And my most important relationship is also your most important relationship. We all share that together, that our most important relationship in the world is with the Lord. 
And that's true if you are a Christian, you can't remember a time when you weren't a Christian, you were raised in a Christian home, you read your Bible all the time, you're, you're daily in the Word and in prayer, good. Your relationship with the Lord is your most important relationship. But maybe you're a new Christian or you're a struggling Christian and you can't really remember the last time you read your Bible, you're not in prayer as much, you're, you're struggling, God feels distant. Your relationship with the Lord is still your most important relationship. And even if you're not a Christian, if for some, someone in this room, if you're not a Christian, you're not sure if you've trusted Christ, for good or bad, your relationship with the Lord's your most important one, even if your relationship with him is in wrath. It's still the most defining relationship you have in Christ or apart from Christ. And we've been looking through Paul's letter to the Romans really since last year, and we're going to pick it back up again this year. And uh, Lord willing, for the next few years, we're going to be in Paul's letter to the Romans And so far, Paul, what he's been doing is he's been establishing that he has been called to be a preacher of the gospel. So chapter one, he says, I've been called, I've been set apart for this work of preaching the good news of the gospel. And he's been working to show us in chapters one and two that uh, the gospel is good news because of the wrath of God that's revealed from heaven against sinners. In chapter one, he talks about godless sinners, people who love their sin, hate God, suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. And he says, the wrath of God is against you. And then in chapter two, he goes after the religious hypocrites whose sins might look more respectable because they've figured out how to navigate the church circle. But he says, God's wrath is against you too if you don't trust in Christ. And so he he takes his time to level the playing field and show us that all of us have equal footing of no footing before the Lord if we're relying on our ability to keep the law. And then in chapter three, he gets to the good news. He's building layer by layer, line by line, therefore this, therefore this, therefore this, like a good lawyer that he is. And he gets to the good news that there is actually a way to have a right standing with God apart from the law. And he says it's because Christ kept the law on our behalf. And so lawbreakers who are blatantly in sin and that's their background as being irreligious or religious people, you grew up in a religious home or religious upbringing, both of you now have a way to be right with God apart from the law. And he gets to chapter three, verse 24, or 23 and 24, he says that now because Christ has kept the law for us, the righteousness of God through faith can be, can be ours, that we have the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And verse 24, he says that we're justified by his grace as a gift through And this is the key phrase, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And as far as I can tell, I'm pretty sure on this, that's the first time that the phrase in Christ shows up in Romans. And it's kind of a a puzzling uh, phrase because what he's saying, and I want to pause for a second, prepositions are important. I know I'm like a grammar nerd and I talk about this a lot, but we can miss a lot of glory by missing our prepositions. These, these words or these phrases that are uh, keys to relationships. So in him, with him, through him, the, these words that point out our relationship to something, these are really important. And Paul uses this phrase in Romans 3.24 that our redemption, our redemption, something we have is in Christ. So redemption has a location. It's not in us. He doesn't say that by faith, redemption is in you. He says redemption is in Christ, but we have it. And so how does that work? How does that math line up? And, and so the, the idea here that we're going to take this Sunday to preach on is the doctrine of union with Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? 
What does it mean to be with Christ? What does it mean to be united with him? Because that's the key. That's kind of what opens the floodgates of God's grace and all of our blessings. And so the idea here is, before we jump back into Ephesians 2, I just wanted to explain, the idea here is that we have a legal union with Christ that gives us a living union with Christ. We have a change in status that gives us a change in relationship. Kind of like my wedding day created a marriage relationship. You don't get a marriage without a wedding. You can act like you're married, but you're not married. You don't have a marriage without a wedding. It's like two sides of the same coin. I can't give you a quarter and just give you the heads side and you're missing the tail side. It doesn't work that way. And so uh, just as I have a legal union with Liz, I also have a living and relational union with her as well. The legal union is what officially creates the living union. It's what my marriage was founded on, on our wedding day. And so now Liz and I experience a living union. Our lives are entwined. We share meals. We share a home. We share possessions. We share children. And both are distinctly important, this legal and this living union. It's inseparable and both are important. And uh, the legal union that we have with Christ is when we're justified. It's when we place our faith in him. It's when we start that relationship. We're given justification, adoption. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We change from judge criminal to father son, right? And so the foundation of our living relationship with God through Christ is our legal relationship with God through Christ. But we don't want to live with only one in view. And I think a lot of times I see this in Christians that you'll hear Um, essentially this idea, they don't say it this way, but I have my legal union in view, but not my living union. What I mean by that is, imagine if I said, I'm married to Liz, our wedding day is the most important day to me, but oh no, I don't don't live with her, we don't talk, I don't love her, we don't share meals, we we don't have kids together, we don't have a house together. Um, You'd start to wonder like, you're really married? bud, I'd love to see a little bit more evidence that you actually had a wedding day. You know, even let's say I produced a marriage certificate. You'd say like, is that forged? Like, is she real? <laughs> like, no, my girlfriend's in Canada. She goes to a different school, right? You'd want to see a little bit more evidence of this real union. And I think the same thing can be true of people claiming union with Christ, right? Maybe you prayed a prayer to receive Jesus, or you walked an aisle at an altar call, or you raised your hand at a church camp, or maybe you got baptized, but there's no Jesus in your life. I don't see any evidence of love for him. I don't see uh, giving. I don't see generosity. I don't see prayer. I don't see studying of the word. Your affections don't seem to have changed. Well, I'm going to say, like, kind of the, is she real? (laughs) There's that question of, is this living relationship real if, if you're just claiming to have this legal union? And so it's this idea, if you've given your heart to the Lord, you'll keep giving your heart to the Lord. And so what I want to look at as we look at Ephesians 2 today is this doctrine of union with Christ. Because as we work our way through Romans, we've covered basically the first five chapters of Romans. In a couple weeks, Seth is going to pick back up in Romans 6. And we're going to see this idea start to come into view. This idea of union with Christ is going to get unpacked more and more and more. That we're united with him in baptism, we're united with him in death, united with him in resurrection. All these things are going to start to pour out through Paul's writing. And so I wanted to take this Sunday to look at some of the benefits, some of what it means to be united with Christ. So if you are taking notes, the kind of three beats I'm going to hit this morning are the three benefits that we see in Ephesians 2. The first is that our union with Christ raises us to glory. The second is that our union with Christ secures God's kindness. And the third is that our union with Christ redeems our labors. 
So look with me. We're not going to cover all of exhaustively all of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. These three in Christ phrases are going to start in verse 5. So verse 5 picks up. It says, our first benefit of union with Christ is that we're raised to glory. It says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved, raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that's our first in Christ Jesus we see here. So Paul points out a few aspects of being in Christ in these first two verses we're going to look at. Um, We're made alive, we're raised up, and we're seated with him. So under this first heading, uh, we're going to have kind of three rungs on the ladder that that Paul's going to walk through. Alive, raised up, and seated. So first, God made us alive. Uh, As opposed to being dead in our sins, we're now alive with Christ. We go from the domain of Satan and sin and death to the kingdom of the Son. This is the doctrine of regeneration. God takes out our heart of stone and gives us a real, live, beating heart of flesh that loves him. We're given new desires, and our old desires we have a distaste for, our sinful desires. If anyone is a Christian, you know this to be the case. It's not perfect. It's not like I have perfect new desires and all my old desires for sin went away. But there's a decisive change where you can't relish your sin. You can't love your sin the way you once did. We are tempted to sin, and we might find joy in sin, but it's hollow, and we immediately feel shame and embarrassment by it in a way that we didn't before we were in Christ. And so because of our legal union with him, we're now united with him in a living relationship. We're made alive, spiritually alive. We went from unable to live a life pleasing to God to now able. We've been given the gift of faith. We can now put faith in Christ. We can have faith in his promises day by day. The shackles of sin have fallen off. And so you went from serving Satan, the prince of the power of the air, to now serving Christ. You went from fellowship with the world to now fellowship in the church. You went from trusting yourself to trusting the Lord. And so that's kind of wrapped up in this idea of made alive. But then he says you're raised up and seated with him. So Paul says we're raised up, seated with him in heaven or in the heavenly places in Christ. At first glance, you might think, as I did, this is just a continuation of the thought of being made alive. This is just another way of rephrasing that, but I don't think so. I think that us being made alive, kind of raised out of the grave of our sins, is, you know, tied to Christ's resurrection. But then after his resurrection, Christ was raised up. Christ was seated somewhere. So I think this is something else. And I think this could possibly be, I'm going to put my chips in, that this is in reference to the ascension and the enthronement of Christ in heaven. Where do I get that, right? How is that possible? I would think, doesn't that sound blasphemous? <laughs> I would think so if it weren't in scripture. We see in 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, this is an early creed of the church. He says, uh, uh, this is Paul writing to Timothy, if we have died with him, we will live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. Or even in Revelation 3, this is John writing to the one, uh, it was Jesus saying, but John writing down, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I've also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So how could this happen? Where could this come from? This seems larger than life. This seems too good to be true that we would be raised with Christ and seated on the throne with him. Well, this living union that would take us to the highest heights of heaven into the throne room of God and even sitting with God, I I would ask Paul, show your work. How does the math add up? 
thankfully he does that just a few verses before where we are. So if you just look a little bit back at the end of chapter one, we're in chapter two of Ephesians. At the end of chapter one, he says that he, meaning God, worked in Christ, this is verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So we look back at the description of Christ's resurrection, Christ's ascension, Christ's enthronement in verses 1, 21, or 20 and 21. So the father raised him, he took him up to heaven, he seated him with him at his right hand. And a quick note about the right hand. You'll see this a lot. This has the idea of power and favor. And we, we have this still in our culture, right? If I'm talking about, I'm doing something with my right hand, like say I threw a ball, it's gonna go 10 times farther than if I threw it with my left hand. I'm just less coordinated. It's not my dominant hand on my left. I'm less powerful, less coordinated. It's this idea of power. It's also this idea of favor, right? We, we talk about having a right-hand man, the, the person you'd rely on as your, you know, your most trusted aid or your most trusted help. They're your closest friend. And so the idea here is that Christ is God's right-hand man. He sits in this power and favor and authority position on the throne with God. And so he's saying in, in chapter one, this is Christ's identity. Christ has been raised from the dead and not just alive, that he's raised all the way to the throne room of God and he's sitting in this place of power and authority. And then to kind of show the math, verses 22 and 23 of chapter one, he says, and then he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. And so who is his body? That's us. And so how is this possible, this idea that we would be raised with Christ, not just made spiritually alive, but given this, this ascension and this enthronement with him, again, not that we're not God, we're not king, but we are the body of the king. You are his body, he is your head. Wherever he goes, you go. If Christ is raised from the dead, so are you. If Christ is ascended to heaven, so are you. If Christ is in the very presence of God, so are you. Christ sits down on his throne to rule over the world, then you're there with him. You're not the head, you're not the king, he is, but you're his body, you're there with him. And so our union with Christ is the key that unlocks the floodgates of God's grace, this legal union that creates a living union. We go from dead in the grave to raised, not just from sin, but raised to heaven. And this leaves, I wanna point this out, this leaves no room at all for pride or despair in the Christian. It leaves no room for pride because we didn't do this. We have no claim to the throne. We have no right to be on the throne. We didn't do anything. We were dead in our sins. We were, we were so dead. We, we see that we were following the course of the world. We were following Satan. But our pride is destroyed because we see we're, we, have, we have nothing. It's all of Christ. But, but it doesn't lead us to despair. When we look at our sins, when we dwell on the fact that, yes, we were following Satan. Yes, we were following the course of this world. So yeah, okay, Chris, I'm, I'm not proud, but I am despairing. I'm so sinful. I, I'm so aware of my sin. It's always before me. Well, it doesn't leave us in despair because we see what Christ has done. When we're united with him, our sins are forgiven. We're justified by his grace. We're adopted and we're raised not just from the grave, but raised to the very throne room of God. And so the Christian's life should not be marked by pride or despair. It should be marked by humility and hope. Humility and hope. So the first benefit we see here in our text, the first in Christ statement is that in Christ, we're raised to glory with him. The second benefit we see is that our union with Christ secures God's kindness. So read verse seven with me of Ephesians two. 
He says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So Paul here wants us to see the eternality of our benefit of union with Christ, the eternality of this relationship, the eternality of the benefits with it. And this is an amazing benefit that he singles out. Uh, God's kindness for us. And don't miss the so that. The beginning of verse seven says, so that in the coming ages, he would show how kind he is. You look back a second and you go, wait, wait, so that what? He's saying the reason he raised you from the dead, the reason he gave you new life, the reason he gave gave you a relationship with God, the reason he raised you up to be in his presence is so that he can show how kind he is to you forever and ever and ever. It's an amazing, amazing benefit of our union with Christ, of being found in him. It's the reason you've been made alive, the reason you've been raised up, the reason you're sitting at the right hand of God is that he would show his kindness to you for eternity. He has an immeasurable amount of time to show off the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness for us, which is good because they're both immeasurable. (laughs) And so Paul is saying God is rich. God is a rich God. And what is he rich with? Here he's saying grace. God is rich with grace. And a lot of times in our culture, people display their riches in different ways, right? So God is rich with something and then shows it off in a certain way, right? In our culture, when we think of wealth, we usually think rich with money and then showing it off through things or experiences, right? So a lot of times people will be rich with money and the way they wanna show that off is their tech, their technology, right? Your Android or your iPhone, or oh, you've got this phone, well, I've got the pro version of that, right? Or maybe you're in the sneaker culture and so it's like, I've got wealth and I show that off by having like $800 shoes. Right? Or maybe some of the ladies, it's like the, the custom handbag culture. You have this wealth, you show it off in a certain way, or it's your clothes, or it's your makeup, or it's your hair. Like, c- celebrities do this. I don't know if anybody remembers the show Cribs. Maybe I'm showing my age, but like celebrities would do this by showing how many homes they have, how many rooms are in their homes, how many cars are in their driveway, the, the level of car that they have. So celebrities have wealth and they show it in a certain way. And so we see that God is rich with something else. I mean, he's, he's rich with money too. He's even rich with their money. It's all his, but he's rich with grace. And so he is rich with grace and the way he shows it off is by being kind to his people. And he needs all of eternity to do it. It's not by showing off uh, things or vacations. He needs all of eternity to show how rich he is with grace and how kind he is in showing it off. And so it's this idea that our union with Christ is eternal. We see here in, in Ephesians 2, 7, that he needs all of the coming ages, all of, all of time going forward to show off the, the glories of our union with Christ. But we even see it's not just an eternal in the future thing. In Ephesians 1, 4, we see it's eternally in the past. He, Paul writes there that he chose us in him. So we got that in him language. He chose us in him before the foundations of the world. And so we have this idea that our union with Christ is our, is our good, is our glory, all the way in eternity past and all the way into eternity future. Before the foundation of the world and all, with, all the way into the coming ages. And so Paul takes us from eternity past into eternity future to show us that God's love for us and his kindness for us is a solid, immovable rock in that nature of union with Christ. And this quote from Gerhardus Voss, I really liked. He said, the best proof that he, God, will never cease to love us lies in that he never began. Meaning 
God's love for you didn't have a beginning, didn't have a start date. We go all the way into eternity past and look all the way into eternity future and we see it there. Perfect, unmoving, unshakable. The best proof he will never cease to love us lies in that he never began to love us. So that's our second benefit of union with Christ. First one is that we're raised to glory. Second is that it secures God's kindness for us. And third, verse 10, we see our third in Christ. The third benefit is that it redeems our labor. It changes our works. So it says here in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, there's that phrase, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so we are not saved as a result of our works. We should know that if you're Christians, you should know your works have no part in your salvation. And we see even if you track back one verse, verse nine, it's not a result of works that no one may boast. And again, Paul went through pretty painstaking labors in verses one through three to show you weren't doing anything redeemable. You weren't doing anything of value for God. You were dead in your sins. So you want to talk about in something? Before you were in Christ, you were in, in death, in sin, in trespasses. That was the relationship that marked your life. Dead in sins, dead in trespasses, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That was you. There was, no, there was no good works to single you out and have God go, well, oh, wow, this guy's so good. I could definitely use him for my kingdom. There's none of that. We're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. We often see, especially in the church today, this idea of antinomianism. And that's a long word, which just break it into two parts. Anti meaning not or against, and nomos meaning law. People who are against the law. People who don't think it's right to have good works. Don't think it's important that Christians have good deeds and good works to mark their lives. That God didn't make us for good works. Well, this verse completely turns that on its head. And so before we were dead in our sins, walking after the passions of our flesh, but now he says you're created in Christ. This is that third benefit, new creation. He says you're created in Christ, you're God's workmanship, which that Greek word workmanship is poema. It's this idea that you're, you're God's poem, you're his handiwork, you're his, you're his piece of art, you're his handcrafted uh, thing that he's made. And so uh, we see here that we're God's creation, not just in the sense that you've been born, that you exist, but that in your, you're a new creation in Christ. We see Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.17, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's what's in view here. You're new in Christ. And that all of this was for good works. Paul says that we're not just a new creation, right? And the idea that you're not just this piece of art. You're, you're a handiwork. You're, you're a tool in the hand of God. And even more than that, you're part of his body. When Jesus is, is working in the earth to fulfill his mission, his plan, his glory, you're part of his body in that effort. So you're not just a new creation. You're a new creation with a purpose, You've been blessed to bless others. You've been re-given the task to take dominion and subdue the earth. You've been re-given that task that Christ, your king, has called you to go into all nations and make disciples. Uh, so we have this idea here that there's so much work to do. And, and get this too, this is not like, well, if you're a pastor or if you're a missionary. Like if your job is to preach the gospel, then sure, there's, there's work to do. No, this is for everybody. 
This, if you're a Christian, he says you're created for good works. He doesn't say if you're a pastor, if you're a missionary, if you're a deacon, you're created in Christ for good works. He says, if you've been made alive, if you have God's kindness, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation made for good works. But he says that we can rest in the gracious fact that even these good works are prepared beforehand by our Father that we would do them. These aren't things that you have to conjure up. And so I think, kind of to bring this all together, if we take into account these amazing blessings, these amazing benefits that we have only in Christ, there's a few ways that I think these benefits should shape us. I think that we should be able now, as Christians, to put to death our identity issues. I think one of the many implications of having a new identity in Christ is that it would far exceed anything that we could try to craft ourselves, any way that we could try to gussy ourselves up to look nice or to sound nice or to say the right things or to look a certain way on social media or to present ourselves a certain way. The implication here is that you have an identity with Christ, that you're in him, you're raised with him, you're seated with him, and that should far exceed any sort of identity or image you could make up for yourselves. This should put to death any sort of social anxiety of, did I say the right thing? Do I sound dumb? Me, 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 my, 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 for hours after any sort of conversation that we would think, does she like me enough? Does he like me enough? Does my boss think I'm smart? It's like, obviously these things are important. We don't want to go through life that it's not important what people think of us at all, but are we trying to craft an image apart from or above our identity in Christ? Because all of these fears would kind of betray that we haven't fully grasped the identity that we have in him, that we have this position in Christ. You're forever united to the one who is above every name and seated in heaven. And so this relationship has the power now to satisfy any urge to go after the praise of man, that it would pale in comparison if we would value our relationship with Christ rightly. And it also brings us the joy of knowing our Savior and making him known, that it would fill any emptiness in our heart, any scrambling for identity, any image management syndrome, that it would be remedied by looking to the fact that we're in Christ and that's secure into eternity past and into eternity future, that we've been made alive, we've been raised with Christ, we've been seated with him in the very presence of God at his right hand where there's power and favor. I think this would also help us to treasure God's kindness for us. It's kind of this question of, do you wake up every day wanting to mine the depths of God's word, looking for his nuggets of kindness and grace? Are your eyes open to see his kindness for us? Right? We have it here as a plain promise that God is showing off how rich he is in the way that he would be kind to us. And not just in eternity. I know he says in the coming ages, but it doesn't start later when you die or later when Christ returns. It starts now. We see that it goes into eternity past. We see now that we've been made alive. We see now that we are partakers of the grace of Christ. We see now that we've been raised up, seated with him. It's past tense. He says you've been made alive. It says you've been raised up. It says you've been seated with Christ. And so now, do you see that? Do you wake up every day and think of that? Do you thank him? Or do you still have a complaining heart that wishes you could just have a little more? Once I have this new job, once I have this new relationship, once we have that extra kid, once we have that extra car, once we have that bigger house, do you, do you trust God's kindness for you or are you always wishing you had the grass a little greener? Right? When times seem dark, 
or confusing, and it feels like God's face might be hidden or far from us, even in those days, God is displaying his perfect kindness to us. Romans that we'll get to, I don't know, maybe in a few months or a year, Romans 8, where it says, uh, he works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Do we believe that? That God's kindness to us is perfect and it's gonna take an eternity for, for him to show how loving his kindness is, how immovable it is. Because when we're distant, he's not. That's just the truth. And last, as a new creation, are we doing good? Right? This is part of the implication here is we should be doing good. You have been rescued from the futility of your works. You've been rescued from the futility of sin. Everything we did apart from Christ before we became Christians will be burned up, right? There's no perfect motive before. We don't have perfect motives now, but we can have motives that are for Christ. Anything done apart from faith is sin, we see in scripture. And so we've been rescued out of the futility of our sin. The chains are gone. You no longer need to walk after the course of this world, after the passions of our flesh. You've been made a new creation. You are alive now. And so now in view of our legal union with Christ, you have a living union with Christ. Live it. (laughs) Live it out. God has amazing good deeds prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. You couldn't possibly orchestrate You couldn't possibly orchestrate the events of time and space and order things in such a way to accomplish the good that God seeks to accomplish in you. He gets to take the heavy lifting of sovereignty and providence and ordering the the events of the universe. He just asks you, love your neighbor when you see that need pop up, right? And so if you wanna see the hand of God in your life and increase your faith in him, die to yourself. Take someone else's preference when the two are up for debate. Be hospitable, host people in your home. Be generous and buy someone's dinner. Be kind, have a kind word for one another. Point out the grace of God that you see in someone's character. Preach the gospel, the good news that we've been made a new creation in Christ and it's only possible in Christ. And all these things, all of these implications should be wrapped with massive dependence upon God in prayer. Apart from him, we are nothing. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And so it's only through our relationship with Christ, only in him that we've been raised to the glory, only in him we have God's kindness secure for us, and only in him do we have a redemption of our labor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have chosen us in Christ before the foundations of the world, that we've been adopted, redeemed, sealed, raised up, made alive, seated with you, given new life, given your kindness, redeemed in our labor, created to be new creations, all of this in Christ. And so we pray that we would not have any room for pride on our behalf. Nothing good we do can be accredited completely to ourselves. All of it finds its origin in Christ and in our relationship with him. And so by faith, we ask that we would constantly be keeping that legal union in view that we've been justified by faith and also our living union in view that we've been made alive, that Christ inhabits us now by his spirit, that we would give ourselves to good works. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.